You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This is bio 150, isn't it? Okay, just wanted to make sure. Okay, so we start off with a scenario. 40-year-old guy, quiet suburban life, Married, 15 year, two kids, three and a half dogs, everything's standard, everything's going wonderfully. And one day, out of nowhere, he punches somebody in the face at work. Totally bizarre, out of character. The guy is standing there by the water cooler and makes some comment on some baseball team, takes exception to it, punches him in the face. Utterly strange. Things are quiet. Three months later, his wife of 15 years, happy marriage, discovers he's having an affair with a 16-year-old checkout kid down at the Safeway. Really weird. Then, three months after that, he absconds with all the money at work, embezzles it, disappears, and is never seen again. Three possibilities. First one, this guy is a truly deep creep. Second, he is having the most immature midlife crisis you could ever imagine. Third possibility, he has a mutation in one gene in his head. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, it is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? You didn't know this kid! Okay, we did! They're looking for help. We call me They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public, to public Access, Access America. America. Okay, 
just to get a sense of who's here, how many of you think uh, there is a genetic influence on sexual orientation? Okay. How many think it is possible for prenatal events to influence your political opinions 30 years later? Okay. How many think that there is a valid way of using biology to understand who's religious and who isn't? Yeah, not quite as many hands there. Okay, as long as we're in that terrain. How many people believe in God? How many people believe in souls? How many people believe in evil? <laughs> How many people uh, believe in free will? That's going to change. I might as well ask, is there anybody in this room who actually does believe in evolution? <laughs> Just wanted to make sure, see what we're dealing with here. Okay, how many think that there is a genetic influence and that there's a basic biological difference, a sex difference in levels of aggression? How many think there's biological bases of sex differences in intelligence? Okay, who thinks it's all explained by nature? Who thinks it's all explained by nurture? Who thinks there's a magnificent, fascinating, nuanced interaction between nature and nurture? <laughs> Yay, okay, well, everybody's gonna get an A plus then. You already have the course under control. Okay, so we start off trying to find something in common. Look at these four events here. We're not, uh, in terms of being scraped out there. But these are four circumstances that have something surprising in common. Having your period, having a brain tumor, eating a lot of junk food, taking anabolic steroids. Those of you who are not oriented to it, that's the ones that build up your muscle, like testosterone derivatives. Okay, these all have something in common. Having your period, having a brain tumor, eating a lot of junk food, and taking a lot of anabolic steroids. Anybody want to fathom a guess what's the commonality amongst the four of them? Miss an episode of Public Access America? Download the SoundCloud app now on your Android or iPhone device to catch up. Stanford University. Yeah. Hormones. Good. Okay, we're off and running with hormones. Good. Even more specific than that. Something they all have in common. Oh, come on. Somebody want to guess? See these brief movements of hands there as people uh, change their mind. Okay, it all has to do with hormones. They all have hormones in common, I say, trying to facilitate somebody making the next guess. Oh, come on, they all have something. Okay, we gotta get out of here at some point. These all have four things in common. All of these have been used successfully in courts of law to explain the behavior of a murderer. In the first case, in the first case, a number of cases where the fact that a woman was having her period at the time of killing someone was part of what a jury said led them to exonerate the person. A literature showing that a disproportionate share of female aggression comes around the time of menses. Next one, 
There is an area of the brain you will know oh so much about over the next three months called the amygdala that has something to do with aggression and has something to do with fear. And you get a brain tumor there. And in a number of cases, you get someone who is uncontrollably violent. And this has also been used successfully in a court of law. Junk food. Any of you who are San Francisco history buffs will know 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that Dan White, a disappointed office seeker, assassinated the mayor of San Francisco along with Harvey Milk. And as part of his remarkably successful defense for a double murderer that led to a remarkably short jail sentence was the famed Twinkie defense. The argument that his addiction to junk food caused wild fluctuations in his blood sugar levels, which caused him to do that. Finally, anabolic steroids. Any number of cases of people having uncontrolled violence arguing because they were weightlifters in a wildly abusive range of taking this stuff had something to do with violence. Put all four of these together, and we get the first of the two points of this entire course, which is sometimes the stuff that's going on in your body can dramatically influence what goes on in your brain. Second critical point. Tonight, when you've settled back down and you're ready to go to sleep and you're nice and relaxed and your heart's beating nice and slow, think the following thought. You know that heart isn't going to beat forever. Think about, think about your lips turning blue after the, think about the blood flow slowing down, think about your feet and your toes getting cold, and at that point, you will probably be uh, increasing the rate at which that heart beats. And you will have just seen the second key thing in this course, which is sometimes what's going on in your head will affect every single outpost in your body. And what this course is about is the intertwining, the interconnections between your physiology and your behavior, the underlying emotions, thoughts, memories, all of that, and the capacity of each to deeply influence the other under all sorts of circumstances. Now, what we're going to be doing with this is trying to understand this under fairly difficult circumstances. If everybody here was here because they really wanted to understand why all the wildebeest on Earth mate in the same week each year, we'd have a fighting chance of figuring that one out. But that's not what we want to understand. We don't want to understand why birds migrate and don't get lost. We, we want to understand human behavior. Worse than that, harder than that, human social behavior. And hardest of all, in some cases, some grossly abnormal human behavior. And if you're going to try to do that, there's a problem, which is officially, it's complicated. It is a huge, messy process trying to make sense of the biology of human social behavior. And just as all sorts of realms, when one deals with messy, complicated problems that you need to think about in some wildly interacting way, we all have a strategy that we come up with a strategy to make things easier, which is that we think in categories. We think in categories, we take things that are continua and we break them into categories and we label those categories. And we do that in various settings because it could be extremely useful. For example, somebody give me an estimate on how long this line is. A foot. Okay, people who said a foot, what is it that went through your head to figure it out? You imagined how long a 
ruler is. This is 11 and a half inches because it's, an eight and a, it's 11 inches and eight and a half by 11. But everybody in here has this category in their head, things that are kind of the same length as a ruler a continua of lengths, and there's a category for that. Suppose I'm telling you I have some friend who's a runner, he runs the mile, he's incredibly fast. In fact, he's one of the best runners in the country at this point. How fast does he have to have run the mile or better for you to be deeply impressed? Under four minutes, and thus we have another categorical boundary there of there's an infinite variety of speeds with which you can run a mile, yet we have in our heads this boundary, people who are under four minute milers, you are very impressed with. Okay, now I want to impress you with another friend of mine who's a painter. And this person is such a great painter that they paint with 11 different colors. That doesn't work, because that's not a category that we have. We don't classify the quality of, or hopefully not, uh, we, we don't classify quality of paintings along those lines. But what we begin to see here is, in the right areas, we have categories that we impose on things that are not categorical. Here's an example. Why should you do this? Where did the example go? Here's one of the classic continua that we ever deal with, which is the continua of color, the varying wavelengths that take the rainbow from violet to red, and there's an infinite number of spaces in between. And what do we do? We have rules in English that you divide the continua here and here or whatever, and that's what you call a color. This is red, everything from here is red, everything here is orange, so on. You take a continua and you break it into boundaries. Why do we do that? Because it makes it easier to store the information away. Instead of remembering the absolute features of something, you simply say, it's A. It's a sub four minute miler. It's a line that's almost the length, that's about the length of a ruler. It's the color orange. How do you know that's the case? Because go and take people from other language groups where their language arbitrarily divides the rainbow at other points with completely different color terms, and they remember different profiles of colors differently than an English speaker might. Take a color, and if the color comes right in the center of somebody's color categorization, if it comes right in the middle of the range of what counts as that color, people remember whether they saw that color or not far better than if you show them a color at the boundary. And people will show that as a function of what language they speak. Taking a continua and you break it into pieces because it's easier to deal with the facts. Another example of it, here we have four objects and as drawn here, simply because we have categories to describe the first three, do one of those tests of show people a bunch of shapes and they come back an hour later and ask them, have you seen the shape before? And people are going to be far more accurate with this than whether they saw this or not because we don't have a word for it. We don't have a word that's at all sort of analytical, that's some squiggly whatever. We don't have a clear-cut category. Thinking in categories makes it easier for us to remember stuff. And it makes it easier for us to evaluate stuff. So that's a classic sort of response that we have cognitively to complicated things. But there's a bunch of problems with categorical thinking. First example. And first one you can see from a realm of language differences in that not only is there a continua of infinite number of wavelengths, there's a continua of sounds that humans can make. 
and different languages draw boundaries at different points as to what count as similar sounds or different sounds. There's like two different TH sounds in English, which apparently we're not very good at hearing, but there's other ones we are. And that will affect your ability to remember stuff, what word it was, depending on whether it is on a dramatically different boundary, whether it is sound that sounds different to you or not. Example of this. Apparently, in Finnish, people do not differentiate between the sound of a B and the sound of a P, whereas we have no trouble with that. But people from Finland do not make that differentiation. And I discovered this one day a number of years ago, where for reasons I don't even understand, I found myself needing to take testicular biopsies on baboons. Public Access America is nonprofit. Our reward is an informed world. If there's a subject you would like covered, send an email to publicaccessamerica at gmail.com. Stanford University. Not having sort of learned that in junior high how you do that, I called up this guy at urology at the med school who happened to be Finnish, and I explained to him what I wanted to do, and he sort of took me through the paces and told me what thingy I needed to buy and that sort of stuff and holiday packages of those where you can get a dozen and sort of telling me how to do that. And once we went through, he said, what I want you to do, the thing to do at this point is get some practice. I want you to practice on a bear. <laughs> I said, what? He said, yeah, practice on a bear. And I said, are you kidding me? He said, I know, I know it sounds crazy, but we have all the residents do that. It's a very good learning device. You know, either, either practice on a bear or an apple. Here we see the dangers of making mistakes about differences between B and P under certain circumstances. So we see one of the dangers there, which is when you are paying too much attention to categories, you can't differentiate two facts that fall within the same category. Next example. Remember back at various points of anxiety during exams and such back when, where there was a world of difference between getting a 65 on a test and a 66 on a test. Not particularly different, but because there's this boundary drawn there between passing and failing, there is this dramatic differentiating we make. When you put a boundaries, you have trouble seeing how similar things are on either side of it. Next example, one additional problem that you get when you think categorically. And for this, everybody needs to turn over one of the pieces of paper, the paper you're going to hand in, the questionnaire. And what I'm going to do is read you a series of phone numbers, and I want you to write them down as accurately as possible. OK, ready. 243 650-352-6570, 2565779. 8322449 2913171 2314026593240 8315287 Okay now what that exercise is 
and no, that doesn't count towards the grade. What that will show, I'm sure, when in some obsessive burst of procrastination I actually look through the answers tonight, what it's going to show is the accuracy is going to tank the second you go from the phone number pattern of three digits followed by four, break up that pattern, and suddenly we all get screwed up because we're saying, wait a second, I thought it was a phone number that was one digit, now two digits, I can't, and it's gone, and you're on to the next one. And what we see there is the third example, which is when you pay too much attention to boundaries, you don't see the big picture. All you see are categories. All you see are, wait a second, phone numbers are supposed to come with three digits followed by four. Another example of where we use categorical thinking. Okay, I'm putting up a number series here. Okay, what's, oh my god. Okay, what's the next number in this series? Fourth, 14th, 23rd, 34th. What's the next one in the sequence? Yes? 44. 44. How come? Uh, well, it's looking like you're just kind of going up, like plus 10 in the tens column, but then when you're doing two fourths, or, and then the third number will be up first. <laughs> okay, but remember, it's got to be 44th. What's that? Ordinal, cardinal, whatever it is. What? 42nd. How come? You are right. You are right. Anybody who is a New Yorker <laughs> will know what the next one is. These are the subway stops. And you get a bagel with cream cheese. Can you just head it on back? Yay. So you get New Yorkers, and while everybody else is thinking logical things like 43 and 41 and 45 and 7 billion and all of that, you've got this whole world of dividing numbers by subway stops. We think in categories. We think in categories, but as you just saw, there are these problems. First one being, when you think in categories, you underestimate how different two facts are when they fall in the same category. When you think in categories, you overestimate how different they are when there happens to be a boundary in between them. And when you pay attention to categorical boundaries, you don't see big pictures. Now, what our goal in this class is going to be is think about this big, complex issue of the biology of behavior without falling into thinking in categories. What do I mean in this regard, thinking categorically about a subject like this? There's some chicken, and the chicken is standing somewhere, and there's some rooster over there that does some sexually solicited, exciting thing for the female, and in response to that, the female picks up and goes running over to the rooster, and thus we have our first behavioral biology question here, why did that chicken cross the road? to get to that rooster. So you could answer that like an endocrinologist and say, well, the female had certain levels of estrogen in her bloodstream, which made this key hypothalamic areas responsive to the stimulus. Or you could answer it like an anatomist of saying, well, because the fulcrum of her pelvis or whatever it is chickens have that allow them to run. Or you could answer it in the category of an evolutionary biologist that over the millennia, chickens that didn't respond to sexually solicitive gestures from males left fewer copies of their genes, and there's all these different categories that we can use to explain what's going on. All of these different buckets, all of these different buckets which begin to pull you towards all of the problems we just saw. 
having trouble telling how different or similar two facts are, having trouble seeing big pictures, overemphasizing the importance of the bucket you happen to live inside of. And thus, suddenly, everything about this behavior is explained by a gene a neurotransmitter, a childhood trauma, a, a living inside one bucket. What we are going to be doing over and over in here is the main point of the course is looking at how what goes on in your body influences behavior, emotions, memories, how what goes on there influences your body, looping over and at every one of those points resisting the pull to think categorically. Oh, this is the explanation for where this behavior came from. Public Access America is on Instagram, sharing sneak peeks, episode art, snippets of the stories, and more. Search Big Brain Pod and follow, like, and comment on Instagram. Stanford University. For each behavioral category, we will start off by looking at what the behavior looks like because often that takes a lot more objectivity than we initially assume. What does the behavior look like? Then we will say, well, what went on in that organism a half second before that behavior occurred to occur, to cause it to occur? Which is the world of what's going on with neurons, what's going on with circuitry, where's the explanation for the behavior? Aha, this behavior happened because this part of the brain got activated. But just as we're about to settle in happily into that bucket, we push back a bit and say, well, what smell, what sound, what sensory stimulation in the environment caused those neurons to get activated and produce that behavior? And then pushing one step further behind. Okay, well, what do hormone levels, various hormones in the bloodstream of that animal or individual for the past few hours, how do those hormones change how sensitive you are to those sounds, smells, etc., that cause those neurons to get activated and produce the behavior? And all we're going to be doing is working our way back all the way through early development, fetal life, the genetic makeup of an individual, the genetic makeup of entire population, species, the evolutionary pressure on, all the way back to there, how do you explain each one of these behaviors in the context of those outposts, and how are they not really outposts? All they are are different ways of expressing the same biological influences. If you say, ooh, here's a hormone that explains this behavior. This behavior is caused by hormone X. Hormone X is coded for by a gene. So suddenly, you're not just talking about endocrinology, you're talking about genetics. And if there's a gene there, it has been subject to selection. So suddenly, you're talking about evolution. If you were talking about what smells, sights, etc., are the acute triggers for a behavior, by definition, you're also talking about fetal development that determined how sensitive those systems were to those sorts of stimuli. What we're going to be having over and over again is any one of these buckets that we spend some time in and all we're going to do is think of that bucket is at that point the most convenient way of describing all of the influences that came beforehand. And in that regard, there's no buckets. All there are are temporary platforms, and each platform is simply the easiest, most convenient way of describing the outcome of everything that came beforehand, starting with millennia back in evolution. Okay, so that sounds great. 
That's what we're going to do. We're going to do this, and we're going to be very sophisticated and fancy in our thinking about it, and we're not going to fall for categorical thinking and all of that. Okay, this is a complicated subject, and we're smart, so we're going to try to think about that smartly. That's great, but like maybe this is just an irritating song and dance here of, ooh, we're not going to fall for categorical thinking like people out there. Obviously, when people are thinking about stuff like behavior, and they do this professionally, professional biologist, biology, behavior type, yes, they understand also. This is just this straw man, ooh, we're going to be more sophisticated in our thinking than endocrinologists and geneticists and all of those. They obviously know that these things interact, and there's not just one explanation, and it's just the area they focus on. They understand that. Let me read you a few quotes to show just how much some of these folks don't understand that. First quote, give me a child at birth from any background and let me control the total environment in which he is raised and I will turn him into anything I wish him to be, whether doctor, lawyer, beggar, or thief. This was John Watson, 1912, one of the founding fathers of the school of psychology called behaviorism. Behaviorism that sort of reached its apogee with this guy B.F. Skinner in the 1950s. This notion that if you could control the rewards, the punishments, the positive, the negative reinforcements, you could turn anybody into anything you want, whether doctor, lawyer, beggar, or thief. And we know that isn't the case. We know that's not possible. We know that all you have to do is throw in one other factor like a lot of protein malnutrition during fetal life, and you're not going to be able to do that. That being a crude example of just how wrong this guy was, you cannot have all the control over the environment and turn somebody into whatever you want. Here's a guy living pathologically in this bucket that behavior could be explained solely by understanding reward and punishment. Interesting factoid, this John Watson guy, shortly after that he was driven out of academia for a wild scandal that he was involved in, and he spent the rest of his career apparently as an extremely successful advertising executive. Going to show you something, he may not have been able to turn people into anything he wanted, but apparently he could make them buy all sorts of gigaw nonsense. Okay, next quote. Normal psychic life depends upon the good functioning of brain synapses. If you don't know what synapses are, don't panic at this point. There are ways brain cells connect with each other. Okay, normal psychic life depends on the good functioning of brain synapses, and mental disorders appear as a result of synaptic derangements. Synaptic adjustments will then modify the corresponding ideas and force them into different channels. Using this approach, we obtain cures and improvements, but no failures. Synaptic adjustments. Synaptic, what do you suppose those little old synaptic adjustments are that this guy is referring to? Any guesses? Somebody shout it out. Electroshock therapy. Electroshock therapy, you know, a little synaptic. You wish it were as gentle as electroshock therapy. This is even more dramatic synaptic adjustments. Any other guesses? 
yeah, frontal lobotomies. You know, you want to adjust somebody's synapses so you just like slice off the front third of their brain or so. This was Agos Moniz, a Portuguese neurologist who invented frontal lobotomies. It had a different name at the time, but was the person who started this and something that was done to tens and hundreds of thousands of people who had absolutely nothing wrong with them. One of the darkest chapters of where psychiatry gets in bed with ideology, massive criminal destruction of people's brains. This is what he had to say about the procedure on his acceptance of his Nobel Prize in physiology and medicine for having invented it. So here we have somebody pathologically living in a world of understand how synapses are working, adjust them, and with that, we obtain cures and improvements, but no failures. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, you, nobody, nobody, gonna hit as hard as fight. Hard as fight. Ask not. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows Everybody. things are bad. It's a depression. depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about it ain't how hard you get. It's about how hard you get and keep moving forward. How much you take it keep moving forward. That's how winning is Yes, we can. I wanted to run out of that tunnel. For my dad. To prove to everyone what? Public Access America. Yes, we can. On SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and now Facebook. Public Access, Public America. Access America. History in the history making. In the making. 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 History in history the making. In the making. Public Access America is waiting for you on the Stitcher Smart Radio app. Download the app for free and subscribe to Public Access America to get more episodes like this in your feed every day. Stanford University. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 